welcome back, everyone, to another episode from 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Joseph Conrad is a storyteller, like Jack London, who traveled much and saw and experienced a lot, particularly in the South Pacific and in Africa. He wrote this story, Youth, in 1898, and the story depicts his first sea travel to the Far East. This story is narrated by the fictional character Charles Marlowe, who Joseph Conrad fans will remember from Lord Jim and Heart of Darkness. The story begins with five men, all veterans of the merchant navy sharing drinks around a mahogany table, as Marlowe begins to share his account of his first voyage to the east aboard the bark Judea. Back in those days, the ships were wooden, and sailing through storms was extremely dangerous. Not that many men lived to become writers and tell the stories, which was why stories like these were highly sought after by magazines like Collier's. And now, Part 1 of Youth by Joseph Conrad. This could have occurred nowhere but in England, where men and sea interpenetrate, so to speak, the sea entering into the life of most men, and the men knowing something or everything about the sea in the way of amusement, of travel, or of breadwinning. We were sitting round a mahogany table that reflected the bottle, the claret glasses, and our faces as we leaned on our elbows. There was a director of companies, an accountant, a lawyer, Marlowe, and myself. The director had been a Conway boy. The accountant had served four years at sea. The lawyer, a fine-crusted Tory, high churchman, the best of old fellows, the soul of honor, had been chief officer in the P&O in the good old days when mail boats were square-rigged at least on two masts and used to come down the China Sea before a fair monsoon with stun sails set alow and aloft. We all began life in the merchant service. Between the five of us there was the strong bond of the sea and also the fellowship of the craft, which no amount of enthusiasm for yachting, cruising, and so on can give, since one is only the amusement of life, and the other is life itself. Marlowe, at least I think that's how he spelt his name, M-A-R-L-O-W, told the story, or rather the chronicle, of a voyage. Yes, I've seen a little of the eastern seas, but what I remember best is my first voyage there. You fellows know there are those voyages that seem ordered for the illustration of life that might stand for a symbol of existence. You fight, work, sweat, nearly kill yourself. Sometimes do kill yourself, trying to accomplish something, and you can't. Not from any fault of yours, you simply can do nothing, neither great nor little. Not a thing in the world. Not even marry an old maid or get a wretched 600-ton cargo of coal to its port of destination. It was altogether a memorable affair. It was my first voyage to the east, and my first voyage as a second mate. It was also my skipper's first command. You'll admit it was time. He was 60 if a day, a little man, with a broad, not very straight back, with bowed shoulders, and one leg more bandy than the other. He had that queer, twisted-about appearance you see so often in men who work in the fields. He had a nutcracker face, chin and nose trying to come together over a sunken mouth, and it was framed in an iron-gray fluffy hair that looked like a chin strap of cotton wool sprinkled with coal dust. 
"'and he had blue eyes in that old face of his, "'which were amazingly like a boy's. "'With that candid expression, "'some quite common men preserved to the end of their days "'by a rare internal gift of simplicity of heart "'and rectitude of soul. "'What induced him to accept me was a wonder. "'I'd come out of a crack Australian clipper, "'where I'd been third officer, "'and he seemed to have a prejudice against crack clippers "'as aristocratic and high-toned. "'He said to me, "'You know, in this ship, you're going to have to work.' "'I said I had to work in every ship I'd ever been in. "'Ah, but this is different. "'And you gentlemen out of them big ships. "'But there, I dare say, you'll do. "'Join tomorrow.' "'And I joined tomorrow. "'That was twenty-two years ago, and I was just twenty. "'How time passes! "'It was one of the happiest days of my life. "'Fancy!' Second mate for a first time, a really responsible officer. I wouldn't have thrown up my due billet for a fortune. The mate looked me over carefully. He was also an old chap, but of another stamp. He had a Roman nose, a snow-white long beard, and his name, as I remember, was Mahone. But he insisted that it should be pronounced man. He was well-connected, yet there was something wrong with his luck, and he had never got on. As to the captain, he'd been for years in coasters, then in the Mediterranean, and last in the West Indian trade. He'd never been round the capes. He could just write a kind of sketchy hand and didn't care for writing at all. Both were thorough good seamen, of course, and between those two old chaps, I felt like a small boy between two grandfathers. The ship also was old. Her name was the Judea. Queer name, isn't it? She belonged to a man, Wilmer, Wilcox, some name like that. But he has been bankrupt and dead these twenty years or more, and his name don't matter. She'd been laid up in Shadwell Basement for ever so long. You may imagine her state. She was all rust, dust, grime, soot aloft, dirt on deck. To me it was like coming out of a palace into a ruined cottage. She was about four hundred tons, "'had a primitive windlass, wooden latches to the doors, "'not a bit of brass about her, and a big square stern. "'There was on it, below her name in big letters, "'a lot of scroll work with the gilt off "'and some sort of coat of arms with the motto, "'Do or die underneath. "'I remember it took my fancy immensely. "'There was a touch of romance in it, "'something that made me love the old thing, "'something that appealed to my youth.' We left London in ballast, sand ballast, to load a cargo of coal in a northern port for Bangkok. Bangkok? I thrilled. I'd been six years at sea, but had only seen Melbourne and Sydney. Very good places. Charming places in their way. But Bangkok? We worked out of the Thames under canvas with a North Sea pilot on board. His name was Germain, and he dodged all day long about the galley "'drying his handkerchief before the stove. "'Apparently, he never slept. "'He was a dismal man, "'with a perpetual tear sparkling at the end of his nose, "'who had either been in trouble, "'or was in trouble, "'or expected to be in trouble. "'He was one of those guys who couldn't be happy "'unless something went wrong. "'He mistrusted my youth, "'my common sense, and my seamanship, "'and made a point of showing it in a hundred little ways. "'I dare say he was right. "'It seems to me... I knew very little then, 
and I know not much more now, but I cherish a hate for that germine to this day. We were a week working up as far as Yarmouth Roads, and then we got into a gale, that famous October gale of twenty-two years ago. It was wind, lightning, sleet, snow, and a terrific sea. We were flying light, and you may imagine how bad it was when I tell you we had smashed bulwarks and a flooded deck. On the second night, she shifted her ballast into the lee bow, and by that time, we'd been blown off somewhere on the dogger bank. There was nothing for it but go below with shovels and try to right her, and there we were in that vast hold, gloomy like a cavern, the tallow dips stuck and flickering on the beams, the gale howling above, the ship tossing about like mad on her side. There we all were, Germain, the captain, everyone, hardly able to keep our feet, engaged on that grave digger's work and trying to toss shovelfuls of wet sand up to the windward. At every tumble of the ship you could see vaguely in the dim light men falling down with a great flourish of shovels. One of the ship's boys, we had two of them, impressed by the weirdness of the scene, wept as if his heart would break. We could hear him blubbering somewhere in the shadows. On the third day, the gale died out, and by and by, a north country tug picked us up. We took sixteen days in all to get from London to the Tyne. When we got back into dock, we lost our turn for loading, and they hauled us off to a tier where we remained for a month. Mrs. Beard, the captain's name was Beard, came from Colchester to see the old man. She lived on board. The crew of runners had left, and there remained only the officers, one boy, and the steward, a mulatto who answered to the name of Abraham. Mrs. Beard was an old woman, with a face all wrinkled and ruddy like a winter apple, with the figure of a young girl. She caught sight of me once, sewing on a button, and insisted on having my shirts to repair. This was something different from the captain's wives I'd known on board crack clippers. When I brought her the shirts, she said, And the socks. They want mending, I'm sure. And John's, Captain Beard's, things are all in order now. I'd be glad of something to do. God bless that old woman. She overhauled my outfit for me. And meantime, I read for the first time Sartre Resartus and Burnaby's Ride to Kiva. I didn't understand much of the first one then, but I remember I preferred the soldier to the philosopher at the time, a preference which life has only confirmed. One was a man, the other was either more or less. However, they're both dead, and Mrs. Beard is dead, and youth, strength, genius, thoughts, achievements, simple hearts, all dies, no matter. They loaded us at last. We shipped a crew. Eight able seamen and two boys. We hauled off one evening to the buoys at the dock gates, ready to go out, and with a fair prospect of beginning the voyage the next day. Mrs. Beard was to start for home by a late train. When the ship was fast, we went to tea. We sat rather silent through the meal. Man, the old couple, and I finished first and slipped away for a smoke, my cabin being in a deck house just against the poop deck. It was high water, blowing fresh, and with a drizzle. The double dock gates were open, and the steam colliers were going in and out of the darkness with their lights burning bright. A great splashing of propellers, rattling of winches, and a lot of hailing on the pier heads. I watched the procession of headlights gliding high and of green lights gliding low in the night, 
when suddenly a red gleam flashed at me, vanished, came into view again, and remained. The fore end of a steamer loomed up close. I shouted down the cabin, Come up, quick! And then heard a startled voice saying afar in the dark, Stop her, sir! Then a bell jingled. Another voice cried warningly, We're going right into that bark, sir! The answer to this was a gruff, All right! And the next thing was a heavy crash as the steamer struck a glancing blow at the bluff of her bow about our fore-rigging. There was a moment of confusion, yelling, and running about. Steam roared. Then somebody was heard saying, All clear, sir. Are you all right? asked a gruff voice. I jumped forward to see the damage and hailed back. I think so. Easy astern, said the gruff voice. A bell jingled. "'What the hell steamer is that?' screamed Man. By that time she was no more to us than a bulky shadow maneuvering a little way off. They shouted at us some name, a woman's name, Miranda or Melissa or something like that. "'This means another month in this beastly hole,' said Man to me, as we peered with lamps about the splintered bulwarks and broken braces. "'But where's the captain?' We had not heard or seen anything of him all that time. We went aft to look. A doleful voice arose hailing somewhere in the middle of the dock. Judea, Judea, ahoy! How the devil did he get there? Hello, we shouted. I am adrift in our boat without oars, he cried. A belated waterman offered his services, and man struck a bargain with him for half a crown to tow our skipper alongside. But it was Mrs. Beard that came up the ladder first. They'd been floating about the dock in that misly cold rain for nearly an hour. I was never so surprised in my life. It appears that when he heard my shout, Come up! The skipper understood at once what was the matter, caught up his wife, ran on deck and across, and down into our boat, which was held fast to the ladder. Not bad for a sixty-year-old. Just imagine that old fellow saving heroically in his arms that old woman. "'the love of his life. "'He set her down on a thwart "'and was ready to climb back on board "'when the painter came adrift somehow, "'and away they went, together. "'Of course, in the confusion, "'we, di we didn't hear him shouting. "'He looked abashed. "'She said cheerfully, "'I suppose it does not matter "'my losing the train now?' "'No, Jenny, you, you go below and get warm,' "'he growled. "'Then to us. "'A sailor has no business with a wife, I say.' There I was, out of the ship, when I was needed the most. Well, no harm done this time. Let's go and look at what that fool of a steamer smashed. It wasn't much, but it delayed us three weeks. At the end of that time, the captain being engaged with his agents, I carried Mrs. Beard's bag to the railway station and put her all comfy into a third-class carriage. She lowered the window to say, You are a good young man. If you see John, Captain Beard, Without his muffler at night, just remind him for me to keep his throat well wrapped up. Certainly, Mrs. Beard, I said. Then she replied, You are a good young man. I noticed how attentive you are to John. The train pulled out suddenly. I took off my cap to the old woman. I never saw her again. Pass the bottle. We went to sea next day. When we made that start for Bangkok, we'd been already three months out of London. We had expected to be a fortnight or so, at the outside, 
It was January, and the weather was beautiful. The beautiful, sunny winter weather that has more charm than the summertime. Because it's unexpected and crisp, and you know it won't, it can't, last long. It's like a windfall, like a godsend, like an unexpected piece of luck. It lasted all down the North Sea, all down Channel, and it lasted till we were 300 miles or so to the westward of the Lizards. Then the wind went round to the southwest and began to pipe up. In two days, it was blowing a gale. The Judea hove to, wallowed on the Atlantic like an old candle box. It blew day after day. It blew with spite, without interval, without mercy, without rest. The world was nothing but an immensity of great foaming waves rushing at us, under a sky low enough to touch with the hand and dirty like a smoked ceiling. In the stormy space surrounding us, there was as much flying spray as air. Day after day, night after night, there was nothing round the ship but the howl of the wind, the tumult of the sea, the noise of water pouring over her deck. There was no rest for her, and no rest for us. She tossed, she pitched, she stood on her head, she sat on her tail, she rolled and groaned. And we had to hold on while on deck and cling to our bunks when below, in a constant effort of body and worry of mind. One night man spoke through the small window of my berth. It opened right into my very bed, and I was lying there sleepless, in my boots, feeling as though I had not slept for years, and could not if I tried. He said excitedly, You got the sounding rod in here, Marlowe? I can't get the pumps to suck. By God! This is no child's play. So I gave him the sounding rod and lay down again, trying to think of various things, but I could only think of the pumps now. When I came on deck, they were still at it, and my watch relieved at the pumps. By the light of the lantern brought on deck to examine the sounding rod, I caught a glimpse of their weary, serious faces. We pumped all the four hours. We pumped all night, all day, all of the week, watch after watch. She was working herself loose and leaked badly, not enough to drown us all at once, but enough to kill us with the work at the pumps. And while we pumped, the ship was going from us piecemeal. The bulwarks went. The stanchions were torn out. The ventilators smashed. The cabin door burst in. There wasn't a dry spot on the ship. She was being gutted bit by bit. The longboat, our one chance for a getaway, changed, as if by magic, into matchwood, where she stood in her grapes. I'd lashed her myself, and was rather proud of my handiwork, which had withstood so long the malice of the sea. And we pumped, and we pumped. And there was no break in the weather. The sea was white like a sheet of foam, like a cauldron of boiling milk. There was not a single break in the clouds, not even the size of a man's hand, and not even for as much as ten seconds. There was for us no sky. There were for us no stars, no sun, no universe, nothing but angry clouds and an infuriated sea. We pumped watch after watch for dear life, and it seemed to last for months, for years, for all eternity. 
as though we'd been dead and gone to a hell for sailors. We forgot the day of the week, the name of the month, what year it was, and whether we'd ever been ashore. The sails blew away. She lay broadside on under a weather cloth. The ocean poured over, and we did not care. We turned those handles and had the eyes of idiots. As soon as we had crawled on deck, I used to take a round turn with the rope about the men, the pumps, and the mainmast, and we turned, we turned incessantly, with the water to our waists, to our necks, over our heads, it was all one. We had forgotten how it felt to be dry. And there was somewhere in me the thought, By Jove, this is the device of an adventure, something you read about, and it is my first voyage as second mate, and I'm only twenty, and here I am lasting it out as well as any of these men, and keeping my chaps up to the mark. I was pleased. I would not have given up the experience for worlds. I had moments of exultation. Whenever the old dismantled craft pitched heavily with her counter high in the air, she seemed to me to throw up, like an appeal, like a defiance, like a cry to the clouds, without mercy, the words written on her stern. Judea, London, do or die. Oh, youth, the strength of it, the faith of it, the imagination of it. To me, she was not an old rattle-trap carting about the world a lot of a lot of coal for a freight. To me, she was the endeavor, the test, the trial of life. I think of her, I remember her now, with pleasure, with affection, with regret, as you would think of someone dead that you've loved. I shall never forget her. Pass the bottle. Thanks. One night, when tied to the mast, as I explained, we were pumping on, deafened with the wind, and without spirit enough in us to wish ourselves dead. A heavy sea crashed aboard and swept clean over us. As soon as I got my breath, I shouted, as in duty bound, Keep on, boys! When suddenly I felt something hard floating on deck strike the calf of my leg. I made a grab at it, but missed. It was so dark we couldn't see each other's faces within a foot. You understand. After that thump, the ship kept quiet for a while, and the thing, whatever it was, struck my leg again. This time I caught it, and it was a saucepan. At first, being stupid with fatigue and thinking of nothing but the pumps, I didn't understand what I had in my hand. Suddenly it dawned upon me, and I shouted, Boys! The house on deck is gone. Leave this. We got to find the cook. There was a deck house forward, which contained the galley, the cook's berth, and the quarters of the crew. As we had expected for days to see it swept away, the hands had been ordered to sleep in the cabin, the only safe place in the ship. The steward, Abraham, however, persisted in clinging to his berth, stupidly, like a mule, from sheer fright, I believe like an animal that won't leave a stable falling in an earthquake. We were chancing death, since out of our lashings we were exposed as if on a raft. But we all went. The house was shattered as if a shell had exploded inside. Most of it had gone overboard. Stove, men's quarters, all their property, everything gone. But two posts, 
holding a portion of the bulkhead to which Abraham's bunk was attached, remained as if by a miracle. We groped in the ruins and came upon this. And there he was, sitting in his bunk, surrounded by foam and wreckage, jabbering cheerfully to himself. He was obviously out of his mind, completely and forever mad, with this sudden shock coming upon the fag end of his endurance. We snatched him up, lugged him aft, and pitched him headfirst down the cabin companion. You understand, there was no time to carry him down with infinite precautions and wait to see how he was getting along. Those below would pick him up at the bottom of the stairs. We were in a hurry to go back to the pumps. That business could not wait. A bad leak is an inhuman thing. One would think that the sole purpose of that fiendish gale had been to make a lunatic of that poor devil of a mulatto. It eased before morning, and the next day the sky cleared, and as the sea went down, the leak took up. When it came to bending a fresh set of sails, the crew demanded to put back, and really there was nothing else to do. Boats gone. Decks swept clean. Cabin gutted. Men without a stitch but what they stood in. Stores spoiled. Ships strained. We put her head for home. And would you believe it? The wind came east right in our teeth. It blew fresh. It blew continuously. We had to beat up every inch of the way. But she did not leak so badly. The water keeping comparatively smooth. Two hours pumping in every four is no joke. But it kept her afloat as far as Falmouth. The good people there live on casualties of the sea, and no doubt were glad to see us. A hungry crowd of shipwrights sharpened their chisels at the sight of the carcass of a ship, and by Jove, they had pretty pickings off us before they were done. I fancy the owner was already in a tight place. There were delays. Then it was decided to take part of the cargo out and caulk her topsides. This was done. The repairs finished. Cargo reshipped. A new crew came on board, and we went out for Bangkok. At the end of a week, we were back again. The crew said they weren't going to Bangkok. A hundred and fifty days' passage in a something hooker that wanted pumping eight hours out of the twenty-four, and the nautical papers inserted again the little paragraph Judea, Bark, tying to Bangkok, Coles, put into Falmouth, leaky and with crew refusing duty. There were more delays, more tinkering. The owner came down for a day and said she was as right as a little fiddle. Poor old Captain Beard looked like the ghost of a gordy skipper through the worry and humiliation of it. Remember, he was 60, and it was his first command. Man said it was a foolish business and would end badly. I loved the ship more than ever and wanted awfully to get to Bangkok. Bangkok! Magic name! Blessed name! Mesopotamia wasn't even a patch on it. Remember, I was twenty. It was my first second mate's billet, and the East was waiting for me. We went out and anchored in the outer roads with a fresh crew. Now the third crew. She leaked worse than ever. It was as if one of those confounded shipwrights had actually made a hole in her. This time, we did not even go outside. The crew simply refused to man the windlass. They towed us back to the inner harbor, and we became a fixture, a feature, 
an institution of the place. People pointed us out to visitors as, oh yeah, that's their bark that's going to Bangkok. It's been here six months. Put back three times. On holidays, the small boys pulling about in boats would hail, Judea, ahoy! And if a head showed above the rail, they shouted, Where are you bound to? Bangkok? <laughs> we were only three on board now. The poor old skipper mooned in the cabin. Men undertook to cook in and unexpectedly developed all of a Frenchman's genius for preparing nice little messes. I looked languidly after the rigging. We became citizens of Falmouth. Every shopkeeper knew us. At the barber's or tobacco place, they asked familiarly, Well, do you think you'll ever get to Bangkok? Meantime, the owner, the underwriters, and the charterers squabbled amongst themselves in London, and our pay went on. Pass the bottle. Thanks. It was horrid. Morally, it was worse than pumping for life. It seemed as though we had been forgotten by the world, belonged to nobody, would get nowhere. It seemed that, as if bewitched, we would have to live forever and ever in that inner harbor, a derision and a byword to generations of long-shore loafers and dishonest boatmen. I obtained three months' pay and a five days' leave and made a rush for London. It took me a day to get there, and pretty well another to come back. But three months' pay went all the same. I don't know what I did with it. I went to a music hall, I believe, lunched, dined, and supped in a swell place in Regent Street, and was back to time with nothing but a complete set of Byron's works and a new railway rug to show for three months' work. The boatman who pulled me off to the ship said, Hello, I thought you'd left the old thing. She will never get to Bangkok. That's all you know about it, I said scornfully, but I didn't like that prophecy at all. Suddenly a man, some kind of agent to somebody, appeared with full powers. He had grog blossoms all over his face and indomitable energy and was a jolly soul. We leaped into life again. A hulk came alongside, took our cargo, and then we went into dry dock to get our copper stripped. No wonder she leaked. The poor thing, strained beyond endurance by the gale, had, as if in disgust, spat out all the oakum of her lower seams. She was recocked, new coppered, and made as tight as a bottle. We went back to the hulk and reshipped our cargo. Then, on a fine moonlit night, all the rats left the ship. We had been infested with them. They had destroyed our sails, consumed more stores than the crew, affably shared our beds and our dangers, and now, when the ship was made seaworthy, concluded to clear out. I called man to enjoy the spectacle. Rat after rat appeared on our rail, took a last look over his shoulder, and leaped with a hollow thud into the empty hulk. We tried to count them, but soon lost the tail. Man said, Well, well, don't talk to me about the intelligence of rats. They ought to have left before, when we had that narrow squeak from foundering. There you had the proof how silly is the superstition about them. They leave a good ship for an old rotten hulk, where there's nothing to eat, too, the fools. 
I don't believe they know what's safe or what is good for them, any more than you or I do. And after some more talk, we agreed that the wisdom of rats had been grossly overrated, being, in fact, no greater than that of men. The story of the ship was known by this all up the channel, from Land's End to the Forelands, and we could get no crew on that south coast. They sent us one all complete from Liverpool, and we left once more for Bangkok. We had fair breezes, smooth water right into the tropics, and the old Judea lumbered along in the sunshine. When she went eight knots, everything cracked aloft, and we tied our caps to our heads, but mostly she strolled on at the rate of three miles an hour. What could you expect? She was tired, that old ship. Her youth was where mine is, where yours is. You fellows who listen to this yarn, and what friend would throw your years and your weariness in your face? We didn't grumble at her. To us aft, at least, it seemed as though we'd been born in her, reared in her, had lived in her for ages, had never known any other ship. I would just as soon have abused the old village church at home for not being a cathedral. And for me there was also my youth to make me patient. There was all the east before me, and all of life, and I thought that I'd been tried in that ship and come out pretty well. And I thought of men of old who, centuries ago, went that road in ships that sailed no better, to the land of palms and spices and yellow sands, and of brown nations ruled by kings more cruel than Nero the Roman, and more splendid than Solomon the Jew. The old bark lumbered on, heavy with her age and the burden of her cargo, while I lived the life of youth in ignorance and hope. She lumbered on through an interminable procession of days, and the fresh gilding flashed back at the setting sun, and seemed to cry out over the darkening sea the words painted on her stern, Judea, London, do or die. Then we entered the Indian Ocean and steered northerly for Java Head. The winds were light. Weeks slipped by. She crawled on, do or die, and the people at home began to think of posting us as overdue. One Saturday evening, I being off duty, the men asked me to give them an extra bucket of water or so for washing clothes. As I did not wish to screw on the fresh water pump so late, I went forward whistling, and with a key in my hand to unlock the four-peak scuttle, intending to serve the water out of a spare tank that we kept there. The smell down below was as unexpected as it was frightful. One would have thought hundreds of paraffin lamps had been flaring and smoking in that hole for days. I was glad to get out. The man with me coughed and said, Funny smell, sir. I answered negligently. That's good for the health, they say, and walked aft. The first thing I did was to put my head down the square of the midship ventilator. As I lifted the lid, a visible breath, something like a thin fog, a puff of faint haze, rose from that opening. The ascending air was hot and had a heavy, sooty, paraffiny smell. I gave one sniff and put down the lid gently. It was no use choking myself. The cargo was on fire. Next day, she began to smoke in earnest. You see, it was to be expected, for though the coal was of a safe kind, that cargo had been so handled, so broken up with handling, that it looked more like a smithy coal than anything else. Then it had been wetted more than once 
It rained all the time we were taking it back from the hulk. And now at this long passage, it got heated. And there was another case of spontaneous combustion. The captain called us into the cabin. He had a chart spread on the table and looked unhappy. He said, The coast of West Australia is near, but I mean to proceed to our destination. It's the hurricane month, too, but we'll just keep her headed for Bangkok and fight the fire. No more putting back anywhere if we all get roasted. We will try first to stifle this year damned combustion by want of air. And we tried. We battened down everything, and still she smoked. The smoke kept coming out through imperceptible crevices. It forced itself through bulkheads and covers. It oozed here and there and everywhere in slender threads, in an invisible film, in an incomprehensible manner. It made its way into the cabin, into the forecastle. It poisoned the sheltered places on the deck. It could be sniffed as high as the mainyard. It was clear that if the smoke came out, the air came in. This was disheartening. This combustion refused to be stifled. We finally resolved to try water and took the hatches off. Enormous volumes of smoke, whitish, yellowish, thick, greasy, misty, choking, ascended as high as the trucks. All hands cleared out aft. Then the poisonous cloud blew away, and we went back to work in a smoke that was no thicker now than that of an ordinary factory chimney. We rigged the force pump, got the hose along, and by and by it burst. Well, it was as old as the ship, a prehistoric hose, and past repair. Then we pumped with the feeble hand pump, drew water with buckets, and in this way managed in time to pour lots of Indian Ocean into the main hatch. The bright stream flashed in sunshine, fell into a layer of white crawling smoke, and vanished on the black surface of coal. Steam ascended mingling with the smoke. We poured salt water as into a barrel without a bottom. It was our fate to pump in that ship. To pump in that ship, to pump out of her, to pump into her, and after keeping water out of her to save ourselves from being drowned, we frantically poured water into her to save ourselves from being burnt. And the ship crawled on all this time, do or die, in the serene weather. The sky was a miracle of purity, a miracle of azure. The sea was polished, was blue, was pellucid, was sparkling like a precious stone, extending on all sides, all round to the horizon, as if the whole terrestrial globe had been one jewel, one colossal sapphire, a single gem fashioned into a planet. And on the luster of the great calm waters, the Judea glided imperceptibly, enveloped in languid and unclean vapors, and a lazy cloud that drifted to leeward, light and slow, a pestiferous cloud defiling the splendor of sea and sky. All this time, of course, we saw no fire. The cargo smoldered at the bottom somewhere. Once, man, as we were working side by side, said to me with a queer smile, now, if she only would spring a tidy leak, like that time when we first left the channel, it would put a stopper on his fire, wouldn't it? I remarked irreverently, Do you remember the rats? 
We fought the fire and sailed the ship, too, as carefully as though nothing had been the matter. The steward cooked and attended on us. Of the other twelve men, eight worked while four rested. Everyone took his turn, captain included. There was equality, and if not exactly fraternity, then a deal of good feeling. Sometimes a man, as he dashed a bucket full of water down the hatchway, would yell out, Hurrah for Bangkok! And the rest laughed. But generally we were taciturn and serious. And thirsty. Oh, how thirsty! And we had to be careful with the water. Very strict allowance. The ship smoked. The sun blazed. Pass the bottle. We tried everything. We even made an attempt to dig down to the fire. No good, of course. No man could remain more than a minute below. The man who went first fainted there, and the man who went to fetch him did so too. We lugged them out on deck. Then I leaped down to see how easily it could be done. They had learned wisdom by that time and contented themselves by fishing for me with a chain hook tied to a broom handle. I believe. I didn't offer to go and fetch up my shovel, which was left down below. Things began to look bad. We put the longboat into the water. The second boat was ready to swing out. We had also another, a 14-foot thing, on davits aloft, where it was quite safe. Then, behold, the smoke suddenly decreased. We redoubled our efforts to flood the bottom of the ship. In two days, there was no smoke at all. Everybody was on the broad grin. This was on a Friday. On Saturday, no work. But sailing the ship, of course, was done. The men washed their clothes and their faces for the first time in a fortnight and had a special dinner given them. They spoke of spontaneous combustion with contempt and implied they were the boys to put out combustions. Somehow we all felt as though we each had inherited a large fortune. But a beastly smell of burning hung about the ship. Captain Beard had hollow eyes and sunken cheeks. I'd never noticed so much before how twisted and bowed he was. He and man prowled soberly about hatches and ventilators, sniffing. It struck me suddenly poor man was a very, very old chap. As to me, I was as pleased and proud as though I'd helped to win a great naval battle. Oh, youth! The night was fine. In the morning, a homeward-bound ship passed us hull down, the first we'd seen for months. But we were nearing the land at last, Java Head being about 190 miles off and nearly due south. Next day was my watch on deck from 8 to 12. At breakfast, the captain observed, It's wonderful how that smell hangs about the cabin. About 10, the mate being on the poop, I stepped down on the main deck for a moment. The carpenter's bench stood abaft the mainmast. I leaned against it, sucking at my pipe, and the carpenter, a young chap, came to talk to me. He remarked, I think we've done very well, haven't we? And then I perceived with annoyance the fool was trying to tilt the bench, and I said curtly, Don't, chaps, and immediately became aware of a queer sensation, of an absurd delusion. I seemed somehow to be in the air. I heard all round me like a pent-up breath released, as if a thousand giants simultaneously had said, Phew! 
and felt a dull concussion which made my rib ache suddenly. No doubt about it, I was in the air, and my body was described in a short parabola. But as short as it was, I had the time to think several thoughts in, as far as I can remember, the following order. This can't be the carpenter. What is it? Some accident? Underwater volcano? Coals? Gas? By Jove! We're being blown up! Everybody's dead! I'm falling into the afterhatch, and I see fire in it. The coal dust suspended in the air of the hold had glowed dull red at the moment of the explosion. In the twinkling of an eye, in an infinitesimal fraction of a second since the first tilt of the bench, I was sprawling full length on the cargo. I picked myself up and scrambled out of there. It was quick like a rebound. The deck was a wilderness of smashed timber, lying crosswise like trees in a wood after a hurricane. An immense curtain of soiled rags waved gently before me. That was the mainsail, blown to strips. I thought, the mast will be toppling over any second, and I'd better get out of the way. And I, and I bolted fast on all fours towards the poop ladder. The first person I saw was man, with eyes like saucers, his mouth open, and the long white hair standing straight on end round his head like a silver halo. He was just about to go down, when the sight of the main deck stirring, heaving up, and changing into splinters before his eyes, petrified him on the top step. I stared at him in unbelief, and he stared at me with a queer look of shocked curiosity. I didn't realize at the time that I had no hair left, no eyebrows, no eyelashes, that my young mustache was burnt off, that my face was black, one cheek laid open, my nose cut, and my chin bleeding. I had lost my cap, one of my slippers, and my shirt was torn to rags. But of all this, I wasn't even aware. I was amazed to see the ship still afloat, the poop deck whole, and most of all, to see anybody alive. Also the peace of the sky and the serenity of the sea, as I looked around, were distinctly surprising. I suppose I expected to see them convulsed with horror. Hand me that bottle, my throat's dry. Thank you. There was a voice hailing the ship from somewhere. In the air? In the sky? I couldn't tell. Presently, I saw the captain. And he was mad. He asked me eagerly, Where's the captain table? And to hear such a question was a frightful shock. I had just been blown up, you understand. Still vibrating. My whole body was vibrating with that experience. I wasn't quite sure whether I was alive. Man began to stamp with both feet and yelled at him. Good God! Don't you see the decks blown out of her? I found my voice and stammered out as if conscious of some gross neglect of duty. I, I don't know where the cabin table is. It was all like an absurd dream. Do you know what he wanted next? Well, he wanted to trim the yards. Very placidly, and as if lost in thought, he insisted on having the forward squared. I don't know if there's anybody alive to do it, said Man, almost tearfully. Surely, he said gently, there will be enough left to square the foyer. The old chap, it seems, 
had been in his berth, winding up the chronometers when the shock sent him spinning. Immediately it occurred to him, as he said afterwards, that the ship had struck something, and he ran out into the cabin. There he saw the cabin table had vanished somewhere. The deck being blown up, it had fallen down into the lazarette, of course. Where we had our breakfast that morning, he saw only a great hole in the floor. And this appeared to him so awfully mysterious, and impressed him so immensely, that what he saw and heard after he got on deck were mere trifles in comparison to that. And, Mark, he noticed directly the wheel deserted and his bark off her course, and his only thought was to get that miserable, stripped, undecked, smoldering shell of a ship back again, with her head pointing at her port of destination. Bangkok! That's what he was after! I tell you, this quiet, bowed, bandy-legged, almost deformed little man was immense in the singleness of his idea and in his placid ignorance of our agitation. He motioned us forward with a commanding gesture and went to take the wheel himself. Yes, that was the first thing we did. Trim the yards of that wreck. No one was killed or even disabled, but everyone was more or less hurt. You should have seen them. Some were in rags, with black faces, like coal heavers, like sweeps, and had bullet heads that seemed closely cropped, but were in fact singed to the skin. Others of the watch below, awakened by being shot out from their collapsing bunks, shivered incessantly, and kept on groaning even as we went about our work. But they all worked. Our lives were at stake. That crew of Liverpool hard cases had in them the right stuff. It's my experience they always have. It is the sea that gives it, the vastness, the loneliness surrounding their dark, stolid souls. Ah! Well, we stumbled, we crept, we fell, we barked our shins on the wreckage, we hauled. The masts stood, but we did not know how much they might be charred down below. It was nearly calm, but a long swell ran from the west and made her roll. Those masts might go at any moment with this. We looked at them with apprehension. One could not foresee which way they would fall. Then we retreated aft and looked about us. The deck was a tangle of planks on edge, of planks on end, of splinters, of ruined woodwork. The masts rose from that chaos like big trees above a matted undergrowth. The interstices of that mass of wreckage were full of something whitish, sluggish, stirring, of something that was like a greasy fog. The smoke of the invisible fire was coming up again, was trailing like a poisonous thick mist in some valley choked with dead wood. Already lazy wisps were beginning to curl upwards among the mast of splinters. Here and there a piece of timber, stuck upright, resembled a post. Half of a fife rail had been shot through the foresail, and the sky made a patch of glorious blue in the ignobly soiled canvas. A portion of several boards holding together had fallen across the rail, and one end protruded overboard, like a gangway leading out to nothing, like a gangway leading over the deep sea, leading to death, as if inviting us to walk the plank at once and be done with our ridiculous troubles. And still the air, the sky, a ghost, 
something invisible was something invisible was hailing the ship. Someone had the sense to look over, and there was the helmsman who had impulsively jumped overboard, and he was obviously anxious to come back. He yelled and swam lustily like a merman, keeping up with the ship. We threw him a rope, and presently he stood among us, streaming with water and very crestfallen. The captain had surrendered the wheel. And apart, elbow on rail and chin in hand, gazed at the sea wistfully. We asked ourselves, what next? I thought, now this is something like, this is great. I wonder what will happen. Oh, youth, oh, oh, youth. Suddenly, man sighted a steamer far astern. Captain Beard said, We may do something with her yet. We hoisted two flags, which said in the international language of the sea, On fire! Want immediate assistance! The steamer grew bigger rapidly, and by and by spoke with two flags on her foremast. I am coming to your assistance. In half an hour she was abreast to windward, within hail, and rolling slightly, with her engine stopped. We lost our composure and yelled all together with excitement. We've been blown up! A man in a white helmet on the bridge cried, Yes, yes, all right, all right. And he nodded his head and smiled and made soothing motions with his hand as though we were a lot of frightened children. One of the boats dropped in the water and walked towards us upon the sea with her long oars. Four K-lashes pulled a swinging stroke. This was my first sight of melee seamen. I've known them since, but what struck me then was their unconcern. They came alongside, and even the bowman standing up and holding to our main chains with the boat hook did not deign to lift his head for a glance. I really thought people who had been blown up deserved a little more attention. A little man, dry like a chip and agile like a monkey, clambered up. It was the mate of the steamer. He gave us one look and cried, Ah, boys, you'd better quit. We were silent. He talked apart with the captain for a time, seemed to argue with him. Then they went away together to the steamer. When our skipper came back, we learned that the steamer was the Somerville. Captain Nash from West Australia to Singapore via Batavia with mails and that the agreement was she should tow us to Anger or Batavia if possible, where we could extinguish the fire by scuttling, and then proceed on our voyage to Bangkok. The old man seemed excited. We will do it yet, he said the man, fiercely. He shook his fist at the sky. Nobody else said a word. At noon, the steamer began to tow. She went ahead slim and high, and what was left of the Judea followed at the end of seventy fathoms of tow-rope, followed her swiftly like a cloud of smoke with mastheads protruding above. We went aloft to furl the sails. We coughed on the yards, and were careful about the bunts. Do you see the lot of us there, putting a neat furl on the sails of that ship doomed to arrive nowhere? There wasn't a man who didn't think at that moment the mast would topple over. From aloft we couldn't see the ship for smoke, and they worked carefully. "'passing the gaskets with even turns. "'Harbor Pearl! Aloft there!' cried man from below. "'You understand this?' "'I don't think one of those chaps expected to get down in the usual way. 
When we did, I heard them saying to each other, Well, I thought we would come down overboard, in a lump, sticks and all. Blame me if I didn't. That's what I was thinking to myself, would answer wearily another battered and bandaged scarecrow. And mind, these were men without the drilled-in habit of obedience. To an onlooker, they would be a lot of profane scallywags without a redeeming point. What made them do it? What made them obey me when I, thinking consciously how fine it was, made them drop the bunt of the foresail twice to try and do it right? What? They had no professional reputation, no examples, no praise. It wasn't a sense of duty. They all knew well enough how to shirk and laze and dodge when they had a mind to it. And mostly they had. Was it the two pounds ten a month that sent them there? They didn't think their pay half good enough. No, it was something in them. Something inborn and subtle and everlasting. I don't say positively that the crew of a French or German merchantman wouldn't have done it. But I doubt whether it would have been done in the same way. There was a completeness in it. Something solid, like a principle. And masterful, like an instinct. A disclosure of something secret. Of that hidden something. That gift of good or evil. That makes racial difference. It shapes the fate of nations. It was that night at ten that, for the first time since we'd been fighting it, we saw the fire. The speed of the towing had fanned the smoldering destruction. A blue gleam appeared forward, shining below the wreck of the deck. It wavered in patches. It seemed to stir and creep like the light of a glowworm. I saw it first and told man. Aye, then the game's up, he said. We'd better stop this towing or she'll burst out suddenly fore and aft before we can clear out. So we set up a yell. We rang bells to attract their attention. But they couldn't see or hear us. They towed on. At last, man and I had to crawl forward and cut the rope with an axe. There was no time to cast off the lashings. Red tongues could be seen licking the wilderness of splinters under our feet as we made our way back to the poop deck. Of course, they very soon found out in the steamer that the rope was gone. She gave a loud blast of her whistle. Her lights were seen sweeping in a wide circle. She came up ranging close alongside and then stopped. We were all in a tight group on the poop looking at her. Every man had saved a little bundle or a bag. Suddenly, a conical flame with a twisted top shut up forward and threw upon the black sea a circle of light with the two vessels side by side and heaving gently in its center. Captain Beard had been sitting on the gratings "'still and mute for hours. "'But now he rose slowly "'and advanced in front of us to the mizzen shrouds. "'Captain Nash hailed. "'Come along, look sharp. "'I have mailbags on board. "'I'll take you and your boats to Singapore.' "'Thank you, but no,' said our skipper. "'We must see the last of the ship.' "'I can't stand by any longer,' shouted the other. "'Mails, you know.' "'Aye, aye, we're all right.' "'Very well. I'll report you in Singapore. Goodbye.' He waved his hand. Our men dropped their bundles quietly. The steamer moved ahead, and passing out of the circle of light, vanished at once from our sight, dazzled by the fire which burned fiercely. And then I knew that I would see the East first as a commander of a small boat. I thought it fine.' and the fidelity to the old ship was fine. We should see the last of her. Oh, 
Oh, the glamour of youth! Oh, the fire of it! More dazzling than the flames of the burning ship, throwing a magic light on the wide earth, leaping audaciously to the sky, presently to be quenched by time, more cruel, more pitiless, more bitter than the sea, and like the flames of the burning ship, surrounded by an impenetrable night. What a fantastic story by Joseph Conrad, as we end part one and head for part two next week. We would like to share some recent reviews with you. I had promised to do the reviews at castbox.fm, which is a great podcast host and sends a lot of people to us. The first one, from Jay Martins. I'd like to know the name of this introduction theme. And Jay Martins, the name of that theme is The Dance of Ice and Snow. And this one from Anthui. Where can I find transcription for this audio? I want to improve my listening skill, and I need this to check. And Anthui, my best recommendation is to search, is to Google search the story that you've listed here, which is The Brave Brethren of Judea by Charlotte Young. And there's that word Judea again. The Brave Brethren of Judea by Charlotte Young. Y-O-N-G-E is how she spells her last name. And you can find that story at Gutenberg, Project Gutenberg, G-U-T-E-N-B-E-R-G dot org. And this one from Julian Drolet Noel. I'm starting to be fluent in English, and listening to your stories helps me. I can feel that effort is put into these stories, and it's always nice to listen to them on a bike ride. Please keep going. That one from Julian, Montreal. This one from Angie Hildebrand Hebert. Five-star podcast. You tell these stories with a professional yet artistic flourish that keeps me hooked every week. And she had been listening to The Student by Anton Chekhov. And this one from Malek Dehuadi. And it says, Oh my God, thank you. And he had been listening to The Adventure of the Egyptian Tomb by Agatha Christie. We had fun doing that one. And this one, Jed Ward. So happy I found this podcast. It makes me feel cultured. The narration is excellent. I agree with you. One of the really neat things about classic stories is it does broaden your horizons. And it helps you pick up a whole new perspective. It's not bad as a language course either. This one from Mezbahul Alam in one word, excellent. And he had been listening to The Wolves of Cernogratz by Saki. This one from Dan Eppel, wonder, wonderfully interesting story, well read. He had been listening to A Sound of Thunder by Ray Bradbury. This one from Stu Cook. I can see why he was dubbed the French Edgar Allan Poe with a story like this. He had been reading The Vendetta by Maupassant. Very simplistic style on the surface, this tale, but you can bet if you study the text, you can probably find deeper, layered meaning. And this one from Neda, and he says, I need to text. And this one again was A Sound of Thunder by Ray Bradbury. This one from Cheryl Jeffers. Five stars. I recently found 1001 classic short stories, and I just love it. I love the opening music, the stories, and the narrative's voice. Don't change anything. Just add more stories. Thank you, Cheryl. This one from Joshua Sommer. He had been listening to Someone Must Pay. There's an old one, but a good one. The wisest Arabic story I've ever heard. This story is very applicable to Canadian law and speaks directly to the pervading popular values of Canadian politicians as well as media. Well put, Joshua. That was a good story. A good, a good morality tale. And this one, Stu Cook. Thank you for your narration today, John. This was The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. 
I had never read this story before, yet have been given a completely different perspective by film trailers of this story. They painted a completely different picture of this story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. And this one from our listener who had just listened to The Wreck by Guy de Maupassant. What an interesting tale! Such a bittersweet ending, and relatable to anyone that has been in love before. Thank you for your narration today, John. And and I will share this with you. The Wreck by Guy de Maupassant, I think, was in my top three of all the 700 podcasts that I've done here. I really got a lot out of that story and hope I was able to give some back. This one from Armin Van Buren. Thank you. Your channel made me interested in classical stories, and I enjoyed them very much. Thanks for your endless endeavor to build podcasts. This one from Laurel Ornelas. Really enjoy these stories. Love his voice. She had been listening to The Skylight Room by O. Henry. And this one, Mr. Singe. Excellent podcast. Five stars. And this one from Dade Cariaga. Great story. He had been listening to a Sherlock Holmes adventure, The Adventure of the Dancing Men. And this one from Dade Cariaga. Hi, John. Love your podcast. Keep it up. I really enjoyed the Mark Twain stories and the Cthulhu stuff. And by the way, John, I've always pronounced it Cthulhu. Yours, Dade. And this one from Melek Duwadi again. Please record some of Hemingway's short stories. Thank you. Keep up the great work. And Melek, I believe we did put a Hemingway on within about a week of that review. Thank you all you Android listeners for subscribing to our shows at castbox.fm. We appreciate your reviews very much. Stay tuned next week for part two of this great story of the seas by Joseph Conrad. Everybody stay safe. Take care. We'll be back soon. <music>